Paws in the Storm is a new series brought to you by Haymarket Books in collaboration with Gargi Bhattacharya, one of the UK's leading scholars on race and capitalism. Gargi will be joined by one Haymarket author each month to explore ways of collectively rebuilding our crumbling world. Short and accessible, these conversations encourage us to pause and reflect on how to change everything. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. You can support our work by buying our books. Check out our website, haymarketbooks.org, to browse through our titles on abolition, borders, socialist politics, our poetry collections, and much, much more. Hello and welcome to the first in the Pause in the Storm series that um, with Haymarket Books. We're hoping that this series will act as a way for people to access some ideas and thoughts and conversations that can just give us a little bit of space for reflection, that kind of 20 minutes or half an hour in your day to think about both the horrors and the hopes of the world. My name's Gargi Bhattacharya. I um, work at the University of East London and I write around issues of race and racism and racial capitalism. I'm really, really um, overexcited today. If you come again, you'll see I'm always overexcited to um, speak to Rory Fanning, who is um, a very well-known Haymarket author. I realise some of you will probably already know, because that's why you've come, that um, he's the author of Fighting Worth Fighting For, An Army Ranger's Journey Out of the Military and Across America. Um, Rory walked across the United States to raise money for the Pat Tillman Foundation between 2008 and 2009. After being deployed in Afghanistan twice with the 2nd Army Ranger Battalion, he's a war resistor, a military counter-recruiter, and a writer who lives in Chicago. He's also the co-author of um, long shot, the triumphs and struggle of an NBA freedom fighter with Craig Hodges. Um, today, I think we're going to have a conversation which is partly about um, the Worth Fighting For book, but given the moment we're speaking in, it's probably about the ways in which Rory's life's work might help us reflect on the particular moment we're in. And I guess for the future, I should say, we're speaking in late summer 2021, which one day people will forget why this is such a horrible time. Um, so I'm so very pleased to meet you via the screen, Rory. And I wondered if, as you could predict, the first thing I wanted to kind of ask you about is um, how, given your own history and your own life's commitment to working for peace, um, how we might just begin to register this particular moment of rapid abandonment of Afghanistan. And what do you think? You know, why is I was going to ask you why is the United States choosing this tactic in this moment? I wonder if that's something that you could shed a little light on. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on the show, Gargi. I'm, I'm honored uh, to be taking part of this. Uh, take, to be taking part in this. Um, yeah, I mean, that's those are some big questions. Um, and you know how we how we look at 
what has happened. You know, I mean, I guess you start with, you know, the pretty basic point that, you know, actions have consequences. And there wasn't a ton of debate leading into the uh, invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. I mean, there was only a handful of public figures, maybe one or two uh, congressional members who voted against the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and 20 years later, um, we are s- still feeling the rep- repercussions of that lack of debate. Um, you know, of course, I think there are plenty of socialists that spoke out against the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and I think having uh, a worldview that understands things like exploitation and oppression, uh, the impact of imperialism around the world, particularly U.S. imperialism, um, kind of foretold a lot of what we're seeing now. Um, and so now we are at, at a point where we are, we are dealing with uh, not only trillions of wasted dollars, but also tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of lives lost, mostly innocent civilians. Um, over the last 20 years, and now we're confronted with a horrible refugee crisis um, and how we are supposed to deal with that. Um, And I think there is no other solution other than bringing as many Afghans to leave Afghanistan here to America or or elsewhere uh, where they'd be safe. the U.S. started this meddling in at the affairs of Afghanistan for about 40 years, at least. And I think we have an obligation to make sure that all of uh, the people who want to leave Afghanistan, and not just the people who facilitated the occupation, um, but all Afghans who would like to leave have a place to go um, after, after this horrible, horrible occupation that, you know, is... Thankfully, wrapping up, I mean, it's, you know, there's a bit of mixed emotions happening here. I mean, it's great that the U.S. is finally leaving Afghanistan. Um, they should have never invaded in the first place. But it's also now, what do we do um, yeah. going forward? No, no, of course. And, I'm, and actually, the things I wanted to ask you about or much more about, you know, I started with that because of where we are. But when I was, I told you I read your whole book today, just kind of cover to cover like this, and um, I really thought that it's so much a book about managing and processing and living with grief. I know both the grief of a, a particular loss, but also a kind of felt to me like you know a kind of bigger grief of being in, in this world of violence and. And I wondered if um, both the project of the walking and the project of the writing were ways of dealing with both personal and huge grief, or whether that makes sense to you as a reading of the book. Um, yeah, I think walking in particular was a, it was a great experience in terms of just getting away, you know, having the opportunity to uh, visit with people as long or as short of a time as I as I wanted. It was it was after I left the military, I was, it was it was very difficult for me to just have ordinary conversations with people, with people in the eye, and just kind of present with them. And there was kind of a 
a magic in walking 20 miles a day with 50 pounds on my back. I don't know if it was magic or masochism, uh, masochism, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a way to kind of just break myself down a little bit. And, um, you know, if I do have a center, try to find it. And, um, and I met some incredible people along the way. Um, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, I, they, they do talk a lot about a divided country and, and it, here in the United States and, you know, with our history of racism and mm. oppression and exploitation, there is some very, very bad ideas floating around the United States. Um, but I think a lot of people are manipulated um, by the ruling class in the United States and they have a degree of mixed consciousness. Um, they argue for things they actually don't benefit from. And, um, you know, I, it was interesting to see that, you know, so many people out there are in, in in so many ways trying to do the best mm-hmm. with what they have been given and trying to make the world a better place even if for some, in many cases it's, it's it's doing the opposite um so I'll, all that's to say is i had a lot of really great experiences walking yeah. across the country and you know that's not to say you know um you know, I'm, I'm a white guy walking across the United States for uh, a fallen war hero. Um, you know, right, left, up and down, people kind of embraced Pat Tillman. And I walked across the country for, you know, it's it's f- far safer for a white guy to walk across the United States than, than, than someone else. So, um, you know, so all, putting all that into, you know, into the air when, when discussing this, I, you know, I, I will say that I did meet a lot of extraordinary people in my walk. No, no. Well, both of those things are things I'd hope to talk to you more about. But, um, and you just sent me another article as well about the importance of like one-to-one conversations. And a lot of the book is um, interspersed conversations of your journey as well as like these snippets of history and experience. And, and as you say, it kind of gives you a much more textured picture of what American society is like. Not not all rosy, because some people say some re- kind of really trouble, troubling things to you, and you have to say, mm, not sure we're going to agree about this. But, but there's a kind of um, pause in judgment that there's just all these people and, and they bring you a sandwich. And, they, and I wondered if you could say a little bit more about the importance of, of the one-to-one conversations, both in your journey and, and it sounds like in your ongoing political practice that the one-to-one is where we what might remake the world. Yeah, I mean, one-to-one is, uh, you know, it can be daunting and scary sometimes to actually sit there and be present with someone and kind of open yourself up and, you know, um, answer questions and also have that person open up to you um, and be honest with, but I, I think it's, it's one of the more real things you can do as a human being is just sit down and have a conversation. Um, you know, particularly in an era of, you know, YouTube comments and Facebook comments where I don't think, you know, it necessarily captures who people <laughs> actually are. Um, I don't know. I don't really I don't know how to break that down further, but I, I do think that getting away from screens, you know, getting away from the, you know, the Twitter comments and actually just getting in front of people is, is a much better way to get to know people <laughs> than, than the internet and, and all that type of thing. And um, now that's interesting you say that because I hadn't even thought of it as an anti-tech thing. Um, 
in my own kind of patchy political history, I was very much trained as a younger person to speak publicly because that's a a really valorized thing across progressive movements. And as as a young woman, it was good. They wanted to have a young woman on the platform. So, you know, that you learn to give the speech. And I really think it was easier speaking to 250 or 1,000 people than to one other person. And I wondered if there's something in that as well about the conversations we think are the activist conversations or the conversations that will will make something different happen. Because it's a very different choice to say, well, actually, I'm not going to stand on a platform and write my manifesto. I'm going to say, I'd like to hear what you've got to say, and maybe you'd like to hear what I've got to say which is more what I thought maybe you were talking about in the short article maybe as well. That's a great point. I mean, a hundred percent, you know, and, and um, I think, you know, there is a whole other language beyond just words, you know, body language and eye contact and, and all those things you, you lose, I think, um, through, you know, virtual conversations or even presentations. Not to, you know, there, there's a, there's certainly a place for organizing online and there's certainly a place for public speaking. I mean, it's one of the more daunting things people can do. And I have a lot of respect for people who do it and do it well. But, um, you know, there's a lack of intimacy sometimes when it comes to public speaking or certainly virtual conversations. Um, there's an illusion of intimacy sometimes because people just can say anything <laughs> that they want online. But, you know, when you're present with somebody, I think you're you're going to see a better version of, of people a lot of times. Um, and you can demand more, I think, you know, and you know, in, in mutual ways uh, when, you're, when you're sitting down having a one-on-one conversation with somebody. Um, I love that thing that you said about seeing a better version of people. And I guess that's partly part of what is so moving about the book is um, telling these histories of violence, but as you say, also telling these many, many stories of people kind of trying to they're trying to show you their best side, even when some sometimes it's their racist side or their um, celebration of gun owning side. It's it's often like you know there's something else. And I did don't know if it's a proper thing to ask in a kind of left podcast thing, but I thought it was very much a book about spirituality. You say at the beginning that one of the things that happened to you is that you were of faith. And you became an atheist. But I thought lots of things about the, you know, across religious traditions, the kind of relinquishing of physical comfort, the giving away of possessions, the long walk, the kind of walk of penance, the meeting people as as they stand before you. It's a kind of um, remaking of spirit, isn't it? A collective remaking of spirit. And... I guess I kind of wanted to ask you a bit more about what we might do with that need for rebuilding our collective spirit. That's, you know, I'm an atheist as well, but in our dreaming of a better world, because that felt, you know, don't have to believe in a big creator to think, oh, well, we need to remake our, our love for each other and be able to see each other as our best selves and 
relinquish self. I feel like I'm kind of being a bit of a overly fandom-like to you because I only read it today, but other people must have said this to you. It felt like, oh, yes. Take, you know, how do you live in the world which tells you to be alone and ambitious and bigging yourself up and defensive every day because the world is full of danger and say, I think the world can be better than this. And how I'll make it better than this is to say, I'll strip it away. And when I've stripped it away, I'll come and talk to you. Yes. Um, and I, so a part of the reason I kind of left religion is because I think I was, I was justifying too much. Um, I think you can easily interpret any injustice in the world as part of being a larger plan um, that could be, you know, just beyond human understanding. And that, that to me was kind of atrophying my brain in a lot of ways. And I, I didn't want to spend my entire life um, kind of brushing off injustice. I wanted to get to the root of it and figure out why, you know, injustices were happening. But that's not to say that there aren't a lot of kind of good takeaways from, you know, a, a religious minded kind of person. Um, I think, you know, having an idea or believing in something that is bigger than yourself, I think is, is, is healthy to get out of yourself, particularly in a hyper alienated society uh, where everybody is atomized and kind of by themselves. And, you know, it's really it's really easy to kind of go really into yourself. And that's not to say that you should not be very self-aware and, you know, identify what your needs are and and advocate for them. But I, I do think there there needs to be kind of a balance. And I think religion sometimes takes people out of themselves in, in a healthy way. And I think sometimes they take takes people too much out of themselves. Um, but you know, I think I think I because I was a religious kid, you know, and always wanted because in large part because I was scared of death. I think I think that's why a lot of people turn, and that's why I'm also very sympathetic to people who turn to religion. You know, being a human being is not an easy thing. Um, the world is scary. Death is scary, and to have a story um, that kind of helps wrap your mind around all this, I think, is very comforting, and and I can appreciate that. But um, I, do, I, I do think, you know, being being humble in, in a lot of times keeps you learning. And I think, you know, at least certain religious denominations preach humility. I think that's a, that's an important quality. The U.S. certainly could have used some humility before it decided to invade Afghanistan. You know, there's a there's the chauvinism <laughs> that the U.S. carries around is just mind boggling. Um, yeah. yeah, sorry, and I was going to come around to that because the first thing I thought I was going to ask you when I, when I first heard we were going to speak was um, how is it that not only the U.S. population but all powerful nations' populations are still so seduced by um, the military machine, not only in terms of joining but the whole set of rituals and symbols around what it is to be a highly militarized society. And then after reading your book, I wondered if instead of saying, you know, my saying to you, oh, why are people so violent? Actually, why is 
the wish to serve so effectively sucked in by the rhetoric and the institutions of the military? Because so nearly everyone you met wore political denomination was saying, oh, yes, service, a life of service. You're celebrating a life of service. I try to serve. And I thought, ah, that's that's not the same as go out and kill my enemies as a a way of people becoming seduced. I think it is a seduction that it becomes, you know, and I wouldn't say that Britain is not a highly militarized society. It's just a differently militarized society and that people, as you say, want to be part of something bigger and feel that that the pains of their life have meaning. And is that, is service still the, because then we need to change what we say. We need to stop saying, stop being so violent and understand instead the logic of how the wish to serve, the very thing that progressive people also believe, gets taken away for this violent machine. Does that, do, do you see what I mean? From- oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, and there's a, there's a reason the United States spends up to a billion dollars a year on advertising, not including um, video games, not including uh, movies, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think they ma- manipulate people's best intentions very, very um, strategically. And they, you know, this is service, it's, you know, in my experience, the military is the opposite of service. When the soul, when the when the purpose of the military is to steal other countries' natural resources and claim, you know, spheres of influence in parts of the world the U.S. has no business being in, um, that is not a service. That is a theft. Um, that is a manipulate a violent, you know, manipulation of other people. And I think. Um, yeah, the U.S. the U.S. military has found a way to tap into people's best qualities, qualities, and use that as as a, as a force for bad, as, as opposed to good. Um, and yeah, and I, and I think that explains a lot of you know if you talk to people who have actually been overseas in kind of combat situations or have actually seen you know what the U.S. is doing around the world, they're less motivated and enthusiastic. Uh, about and they, I think there's a huge sense of betrayal in a lot of a lot of ways. Um, and I go into colleges and high schools and talk to young people about the things that recruiters ignore when they're trying to sell the military to young people. And they can tell you very little about the last 20 year occupation of Afghanistan, war in Iraq, much less the war in Vietnam or the hundred years of U.S. imperialism, if not more, uh, that the U.S. has kind of been imposing on the rest of the world. And, and I think, and I think that explains a little bit of the betrayal because they they're sold. You're going out to fight for freedom and democracy, and then when they realize they're only fighting to make a small percentage of the population wealthier, or they're they're fighting and innocent people are dying. I think as many as eighty to eighty-five percent of all the people who have died since two thousand and one have been innocent civilians. Um, there is there's a horror in that recognition and realization and i mean the people who sit behind desks and who never really kind of engage you know are, are the ones that are cheerleading for for u.s empire but it's a you know i think you're more likely to find people um out there who reject 
the U.S. mission around the world when they've actually seen it up close in person. Uh, so it's so interesting to me also that now so much of your work is like is resisting army recruiters because in the book you're still you're trying to hold back on that. You know, you have one moment in a school where the kids are all like, "Oh, you're a veteran! Hooray, hooray!" And you have to say something like, "No, you know, don't don't join the army." And it's kind of like, and I wondered, um, and that's interesting for me also to hear that in America there's been a, a silencing for younger people of even the recent history of wars because that's very much happened in Britain as well. But having been the core of um, ideological battle really in the country and Britain was very, very divided about Iraq and it's still a kind of fissure in political culture and it's been a kind of you know, say nothing. Even as British troops are there and dying and coming back in pieces, it's like don't 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 mention that, don't mention that. So I wondered how how do the young people you meet approach the military? Is there still that enthusiasm for this as a path to a meaningful life of of service, or have things changed post austerity? I think people, certainly in Britain, are much more critical of capitalism, including quite middle-of-the-road people because of all of the failures. People lost everything. Has that changed the kind of the mystique around a military life? Well, I think it depends on where you go. And I've certainly seen a shift over the years when you've seen blunder after blunder um, and embarrassment after embarrassment and a realization that the U.S. is not fighting for freedom and democracy around the world. Um, It's quite the opposite. Um, But U.S. military targets um, people who have the least amount of options after graduations. And uh, if you go to the South and West side, um, and that's the areas that the recruiters are going to the most here in Chicago. Um, And, you know, this largely black and brown community um, with, you know, who see the military is a way to pay for college education, maybe to get some healthcare um, and maybe to find uh, a degree of structure. That, that they may not have otherwise had because of poverty and racism. And so, you know, it, it depends on what your motivations for. And, you know, the U.S. military, U.S. government, you know, makes education um, so expensive <laughs> because if there was free college education, it would be far less people signing up to join, you know, one of the 800 military bases around the world um, because why would you go fight and go through, put yourself through all that if you could just to get an education when you can get it for free. Um, so, and there's other people that certainly still do buy into the chauvinistic kind of, you know, belief that the United States is a force for good in the world. And we have to, if the U S doesn't act like the policeman around the world, then someone else will. And, you know, again, that goes back to, the marketing and the public, you know, the the propaganda and and the lack of news coverage of all the things that are happening around the world. Um, no, of course. People just don't see it. People don't no. see the Yes, I mean, certainly there's been 
a, a really willful silencing of any news in in Britain about you know the last I would have said for the last maybe for the last ten years things have been completely like you know, we don't see any more what's going on and that changes people's um, available narratives. Although it's very notable that one of the ways in which British media and the British kind of political class has expressed kind of their disquiet with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, because clearly Britain then feels like oh, America's decided and we don't know what we're doing, is what about all the British deaths? And you've even had um, people from the British military saying, well, then you're saying that all the deaths of those people was for nothing. And it's very hard as a, um, you know, the anti-war movement really is without being completely callous that is it's very hard what else can you say and as you say that you know that um the military here also sucks up young people from the least enfranchised areas of the country where the economy is collapsed has very very high levels of illiteracy amongst people who join as young people this is a collective failure um one of the you know one of the other things I thought was really beautifully done in your book, without any preachiness, was the kind of parallel narrative of all of the lovely little stories of meeting ordinary Americans as you walk down the road. Alongside that, the history of extreme racialized violence, ethnic cleansing, genocide, lynching, the aftermath of the. Um, of a slave society in the, as you go through the spaces. So you tell these little, little stories just to say, oh, look, each space, you know, there's blood blood here as well. And I, I wondered if that was also part of your quiet critique of what a society built on violence is or whether there's any more you might say about the connection between being the primary military power in the world or one of the primary military powers in the world and being a society that still um, has these this very recent history of bloody racialized violence just embedded in it in its landscape you know that as you walk along yeah there's there's a lot of contradictions in America. And there is many, many horrors that do not get discussed nearly as much as they should, and they get swept underneath the rug. And, you know, the challenge is, is how do you discuss those horrors without writing off an entire society and saying, you know, this is unsalvageable. And, um, you know, emphasizing the goodness of people, I think, is you know, just as important as highlighting the horrors that people are capable of. And finding that right balance is always a struggle. And in terms of, you know, how you communicate these histories. And I do think you have to have a, a sense that there is a possibility for change. And there's a possibility of, for change because there is a goodness in most people. And, you know, when you shine a light on the darkness that is, you know, a ubiquitous presence in the United States, I think 
um, you know, you acknowledge it, but you can also then start growing, knowing that, you know, people are potentially, they do have the potential to do good things. Um, so it's not an easy thing. And I don't know how, how well of a job I did, but I just, I, I just tried to, to, to show, you know, that yes, sir, it's been horrors, but there is still a possibility for change. If, if you know how to communicate better ideas to people, ideas that they may not have otherwise been exposed to. Government has done, you know, through red baiting and Cold War propaganda, had have, have done a really good job about mischaracterizing things like socialism, you know, stripping the vocabulary for self-liberation out of, you know, the minds of people. People don't know what's happening to them a lot of, time, a lot of the times, and if you can explain that, maybe there's a possibility that they can choose a better path going forward. No, of course, and that's what a lovely place to to end with really because um what we hope is that however terrible things might seem that people might sit with us for a moment and just remember our resources for imagining a better future so it's been lovely to speak to you thank you so much for your time it's a pleasure. thank you very much